Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today, as we wrap up the first season of the show and get ready for a bit of summer break, we are drinking from a fire hose of optimism and puppies, Adam. Today, we are betting our bottom dollar on tomorrow. Today, with our special guest, Laurel Culp Taylor, we are talking about the 1982 musical, Annie. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor here at Amherst Presbyterian Church in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. And I'm Adam, and I teach preaching and worship at Andover Newton Theological School in Boston. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We take turns picking movies that are supposed to be relevant to our work as ministers, and we try to make our case. In our first segment today, Justification by Faith, we're going to discuss why Annie matters for the work of the church. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we are going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Annie for the lectionary week ahead, which will be year C, July 17th, the 16th Sunday of Ordinary Time. Finally, we'll offer up some postludes, preacher thoughts from each of us on something else we are watching or following. But before we get too far down the line, we want to introduce our special guest for today's show, Laurel Kopf-Taylor. Laurel is assistant professor of Old Testament at Eden Theological Seminary and the author of Give Me Children or I Shall Die, Children and Survival in Biblical Literature. So Laurel has told us to go and watch Annie, and we've done it, and she's here to tell us why this movie matters for the church. Laurel, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. If I can't be on the IADN Hour with Bert Healy, I would rather be here with you. So Laurel... On the poster for the 1982 movie version of Annie that we're talking about, the tagline reads, the movie of tomorrow. And yes, the word tomorrow is in quotation marks because the audience knows and everybody knows that the big song in this show is tomorrow, and maybe that's why everybody pays their money to go see it. But in some ways, the song is the very heart and soul of the movie. It's this cheeky optimism that starts with Annie and then gradually infects everyone around her as she goes from the orphanage to Daddy Warbucks and melts the heart even of Roosevelt himself. There's a lot of tomorrow in this movie, but I think if we're fair, there's there's a little bit of yesterday too. There's a lot of nostalgia, a lot of ideas about what America is that feel a little bit outdated, not to mention some pretty brutal representations of race and gender. If I'm honest, as I watched this movie again, for the first time probably since my own childhood, and outside of some of the brilliant performances, I mean, Carol Burnett just steals this whole thing. If I'm honest, the movie itself felt like something I was okay leaving behind. So I'm going to need a little bit of convincing. Why in 2016 does Annie matter for the work of the church? Well, first of all, you're right. It's a horrible movie. I just wanted to see if I could make you guys watch it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's not that bad. Well, it's It's not not that that bad. No, it's not that bad. And it's not that great. It is both. And yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to pull pull a total biblical scholar here and say it's all about the fact that it's a bad translation and that if we're only reading one translation then we're not going to get the whole picture and so so the 1982 Annie is it's an adaptation of a smash Broadway hit and it makes some changes to it and Part of what I want to talk about is this movie, and part of what I want to talk about, uh, because this movie was it was a touchstone for a lot of us as we were growing up, but part of what I want to talk about is the changes that, that have been made in the different versions of Annie, because there's one that came out much more recently in 2014 
that does different stuff, definitely different stuff with race, not really great stuff with gender, but does really different stuff. And so all along the way, whatever version of Annie we've got, we often see it as being about optimism. And I think tomorrow really makes that come across, the focus on that song tomorrow and Annie as the optimist. But she's really a lot more than an optimist. And in fact, more than an optimist, she's someone who knows how to advocate for herself. And uh, she is resourceful and she's street smart. And when we think of Annie as the optimist, we think of the part of Annie as a child that we want to see rather than the part that she is most of the time. And when you look at the different versions of the movie, you can see that a lot of what Annie does is less have uh, infectious optimism that affects everybody and more interrupt everybody, mm. which is also what children do in general. And it's what children do in the church. So if you think about what Annie does, what Annie interrupts. So you've got the Daddy Warbucks character. And so Daddy Warbucks is a character in almost every version of Annie, except for the new one, uh, where they have a, a guy named Mr. Stax. He's a cell phone, cell phone mogul. And so you always have this uh, wealthy, successful capitalist with constant busyness who cannot stop working, who will not stop working. And Annie is supposed to be a publicity stunt. Like inviting Annie into his home is always supposed to be a publicity stunt. It's supposed to be tokenism, and the tokenism completely fails because she's a person, because she's an interruption, uh, because kids will not let you just keep working and working and working and never stop. And as a parent, um, I've noticed that my kids will not let me keep working all the time. They don't let me have any leisure time, but play is absolutely mandatory. And so part of what Annie does, and this theme that I see in all of these different versions of Annie, is that she interrupts adult busyness, and she creates change in the person she interrupts. And in the different versions, she creates different degrees of systemic change by interrupting that busyness. And each of them is a really interesting reinterpretation of that. So if you look at some of the stuff that's dated, to say the least, in the 1982 Annie, it's this nonsense with the Bolsheviks. Do you, uh, do you guys remember this <laughs> right. from when you yes. were watching it? Yes, yeah. very well. I wrote down a couple of lines from that exact <laughs> moment. Yeah, so what, what did you notice when suddenly you have the Bolsheviks in Annie. Well, the, besides, just, besides the old-timey bomb. <laughs> <laughs> yes, with a little flame on it. Uh, and it's designed to kind of prove the self-evident wonderfulness of Daddy Warbucks, too, yeah. right? That he's What's the line is that he's living proof that the American system really works and the Bolsheviks don't want anybody to know, and that's why they're trying to kill him off. Right, and Annie is standing right there in the room. And Annie, and almost every other character in Annie, is living proof that the system sure isn't working for most people. This takes place in the Great Depression. The system isn't working for Annie. 
and it isn't working for any of the other kids in the orphanage, and it isn't working for Miss Hannigan, or Rooster, or Lily, or all of those random people in the street. And if you look at the original Broadway musical, there's, um, there's a couple of songs. There are several songs that don't make it into the movie. And one of them is We'd Like to Thank You, Herbert Hoover, which was, as a child, my first introduction to American history and American politics. Uh, it's a whole bunch yeah, you of... Had, you had Annie, now everybody else has Hamilton. Yes, yes. That's the next generation of introducing children to American history through musical theater. So you have all of Annie, when she runs away from the orphanage, she not only finds a dog, but she finds a shantytown that calls itself Hooverville. That's a whole bunch of formerly successful people who lost everything and are now homeless. And it's completely absent from the movie. Also completely absent from the movie, you have, you have FDR, right? He's talking about the New Deal, but the entire uh, musical ends with, we're getting a New Deal for Christmas this year. Uh, the entire musical ends with Daddy Warbucks buying into the New Deal and getting on board with the New Deal. And so Annie, by interrupting his busyness, create, is part of creating systemic change. So what's crazy about this 1982 movie is that not only does it have this weird stuff with the Bolsheviks, but it's like the weird stuff with the Bolsheviks is trying to cover up for the musical that it's representing. It's trying to cover up for uh, what's actually going on in the original of Annie. They've taken out uh, the way that Annie changes... Uh, Daddy Warbucks and creates something bigger that isn't just one orphan gets a much better life. It's trying to create a better life in general because the system that worked for Daddy Warbucks isn't working for everybody. And Annie's mere presence still communicates that in the 82 movie, but it, ha it does it much more subtly. Amazingly, you've actually made me like this movie less. <laughs> simply because it now feels like such a pale imitation of a show that I've never seen, but sounds much more interesting and much more, uh, uh, much more punchy. Uh, I'd much rather have watched that, to be perfectly honest. Right. Well, and I wish we could. When I was a kid, right, I sure. wished I could watch that. But oddly, in the 80s, there were not enough community theater productions of Annie to satiate my desire to watch it over and over. And I ended up watching this movie over and over. Well, and that's the interesting thing, too, because I, I think you're talking about interruptions, and it's interesting how this story interrupts a previous version of the story, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I was left the entire time trying to figure out, is this as pro-capitalist as I think it is, or is it playing <laughs> some strange game and and trying to play into a satirical, satirical vision of a sort of middle-of-the-Cold-War pro-democratic vision of the world that also recognizes that such a vision is um is has its own problems and i left so confused <laughs> by the end of this especially because they traded out christmas for the final scene um with the fourth of july yes <laughs> which so suddenly now independence day is the way uh, is the place where we're going to celebrate parenthood, interruptions, 
home life, um, happy ending. Uh, there were a lot of decisions that made that made very little sense to me in this whole movie. And but to your point that Annie is an interruption, I, I think it's really interesting to think about that idea with regard to the church too, because I don't think that the Protestant Church can depart from its bulletin very well. Uh-huh. If we are doing this sort of allegorical read, the Protestant Church is much happier being busy. Um, knowing what its worship services are going to look like and then adhering very closely to that bulletin. In fact, churches get really anxious when they can't, um, when they don't know what's going to happen next. Uh, it's almost like the church is asking, are we there yet? Right. Again and again, if they don't have a bulletin. Right. And, mm. and so children get to operate in a way that I think is akin to the Holy Spirit, right? Right. That, that the Spirit is designed to interrupt our worlds um there's that old annie dillard quote that you know it's madness to wear ladies straw hats and velvet hats to church when we should be all be wearing crash helmets uh for for the sleeping god may wake someday and take offense or the waking god might draw us out to where we can never return dillard is getting to this this idea that we walk into church and we expect order when something else might show up and children do embody that type of spirit um but in what way is this idea of childhood idealized in a totally western way i mean i couldn't help but watch annie and also think i don't know any children like annie and yet i see a lot of many children in annie does that make sense Uh, In what way have we been trained to see children as lovable scamps, as innocents who can see the world in a way that adults can't? And it's broader than just her character. I mean, at least in the film, every child in that orphanage is, is more or less faultless. The only children in the film that have any sense of sin on them at all to speak a little theologically are the, the kids in the alley that kind of, that are trying to threaten the dog. And on the other hand, on the other hand, almost every adult in the film is corrupt to the core, with the exception of Grace and maybe Punjab. So it's it, it's a pretty, it's painting with a pretty broad brush. It is now the thing is when you say that we are willfully ignoring that every child in that orphanage steps on Miss Hannigan's foot purposefully on a regular basis. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> and that's part of what's going on. That's part of how childhood innocence functions. It's a really fascinating cultural phenomenon. And it's something that is not remotely universal, this idea that children are innocent. It's, it's kind of a Victorian invention, the idea of childhood innocence. And it has roots earlier on, but it really became predominantly a part of Western culture uh, in the Victorian period, and it has it's had profound cultural effects to the extent that we think of childhood innocence as this universal idea that everyone thinks of kids as innocent, and they don't. And it's also something that in our, our knowledge and experience of real children, we also know to be completely inaccurate, and yet we hold on to it anyway. Right? You see kids with their brothers and sisters, and they're not remotely innocent. They're absolutely horrible to each other. 
and you think of all of these different definitions of innocence, of children as being people who don't know things, and yet we know that kids can figure out technology and teach it to their parents. So there are all sorts of ways that the idea of children being innocent is a cultural construct that we've started believing. And it's related to child labor laws, which really interestingly uh, also play into Annie. Right? So one of the things that's supposed to horrify us about that orphanage is the sight of children cleaning. We're supposed to think that this is a horrible, horrible place that they force children to clean there. It's set in a time period that was uh, the end of the turning point of the, the emergence of childhood innocence and of child labor laws. So child labor laws emerged somewhere uh, around the time period from like 1900 to 1930, and Annie's set during the Great Depression. Child labor used to be ubiquitous, and especially ubiquitous for orphans. You used to adopt an orphan not because you thought she was cute, but because you thought that that orphan would be useful. Annie, the movie, is based on Annie the Musical, which is loosely based on Little Orphan Annie the comic strip, which is even more loosely based on a poem called Little Orphaned Annie. Little Orphaned Annie's come to our house to stay to wash the cups and saucers up and brush the crumbs away, and then it lists all of the other things that she does to earn her keep. Uh, which is a phrase that Annie uses in the 82 movie. It used to be the expectation that children were supposed to be useful. And so as children went from being useful to being economically valuable to being innocent, to being priceless, to being only allowed to have emotional value, we have this complete shift in how children got adopted. It used to be that the children who could get adopted most easily were older boys who could work right away. And now it's almost impossible for older boys in foster care to get adopted. And it used to be that infants were almost impossible uh, to find adoptive homes for because they weren't useful. And now there's huge waiting lists and expenses for trying to get a priceless, innocent infant. So we have these huge cultural shifts and Annie is situated right in that. Um, so we're supposed to be horrified that she's cleaning. Um, we're supposed to be horrified that she thinks that that's expected of her. And the other piece of her being an orphan is that orphans are everywhere, everywhere in, um, in children's literature and children's movies because that's the only way that child protagonists can have adventures because you have this cultural shift where... The parents are supposed to protect them, where the parents are supposed to stop them from having those kinds of adventures. And so we see orphans everywhere in literature, and all of these pieces play together into our assumptions about what children can be. And it also plays into our assumptions about what children can be in church. And yes, children interrupt us in church, and we think, oh, isn't that cute? And as soon as we say, isn't that cute? We've made that same shift from what's valuable to what's priceless, from really recognizing that there is some value to kids interrupting the way we do church, just like there is real value to Annie interrupting the constant busyness of Daddy Warbucks, right? It's not just that she's given him something priceless with her optimism and her being adorable. 
It's not that she's given him love in his life. She's really making a change. And if we can think of children's interruptions as something that we can value instead of something that's adorable because they just say the darndest things in children's sermons. Right. I think I think also you see this too with with respect to the way that children are given leadership within the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, so children's choirs we we clap and we hold cameras up to make sure that uh we can sort of document or uh, affirm their uh their performance and yet we would never do that for an adult choir or if you know one of our partners was was going to lead worship in some way um we would never take out our camera in order to take a picture of that <laughs> right um and i it, it we continue to betray our our sense of how we understand children's roles within worship, especially as it pertains to leadership, by our behavior that surrounds all of the reactions to being led by children. Yeah, there's something countercultural about accepting that children are really contributing something. That's the same thing that makes us that's supposed to make us horrified that Annie is cleaning, that she wants to contribute something. Now, being forced to clean, I'm not saying that that's a good idea for children to be forced to clean 24-7, although I'm all for chores. But there is something to thinking of the ways that children are already contributing to the church as valuable rather than priceless, as not just really cute, but as really being something that can create change. And that there is something incredibly valuable to the fact that kids come to worship and they're like, why are you doing that? And we have to answer. Well, or we should answer. We don't have to. We can just shush them. But when we answer, we have to think about it. We have to think about why we're doing that. So, Laurel, as you as you think about this, the the ways that churches over the last 50 years have sought to deal with children in their midst have been varied. There are those who have almost totally segregated them out into mm-hmm. Sunday schools, or we allow them some presence initially before we send them out. There are still churches in this country, many churches, in fact, that expect them to uh, to sit and be quiet uh, and uh, to not interrupt and to learn the sort of or, or to be apprenticed into the practicing community. Uh Lately, there's also been a sort of huge move to cry rooms, which is an interesting phenomenon. Uh, how do, how do I think all... we should move adults into cry rooms if they start crying during the joys and concerns. <laughs> right. This is anybody. This is equal opportunity cry room. Uh, yeah, anyone yeah, who like... gets upset, no emotion allowed in church. Right. So... That sounds great. I'd love to have one. <laughs> yeah. Your own cry room, the ministerial is it, cry is it room. Kind of, is it... Is it kind of like a panic room? <laughs> that would be good too. We could have a, have different designated rooms for different emotions. Panicking because the sermon brought up something I don't want to deal with. You have a special room for that. Yeah, panicking because the sermon I just preached was so bad. <laughs> so I'm just going to be, I'm going to go and melt into a puddle of embarrassment in the embarrassment room after that piece of crap. Thank you. Do the rest of the service by yourselves. You shall be fine. <laughs> I, I mean, I think the question that I've tried to ask 
Laurel, is um, how how do each of these decisions um, betray our visions of uh, of how we understand children? And in some ways, is there a biblical vision of childhood that can be helpful, or is that so far away? And is that experience and uh, and the assumptions about children so different that it's it's hard to even connect with? So if you look at children in the Bible, um, people usually, when I say I work on children in the Bible, say, oh, that's so cute, and it's not. Um, my book has a chapter on infertility, my book has a chapter on enculturation, and my book has a chapter on death and suffering. Um, that's pretty much how children's lives in the ancient world go. But I think there is actually something we can learn from it. And it, it relates to that same stuff I was talking about, you know, being horrified by children contributing. In the ancient world, the assumption was that you are as dependent on your children as your children are on you. You don't have children as dependents that you claim on your taxes. You need your children. And not only do you and you as a family need your children so that your family will physically survive because of the work that your children do, but the entire culture needs children to survive. The culture will not continue if there isn't birth and enculturation. And so the suffering and death of children in the Bible, for example, isn't about, oh no, the horror, the suffering of innocent children. It's about, oh no, we're not going to survive. As a family, as a culture, we will not make it without them. Uh, we really need each other. And as much as we've gained by having things like child labor laws that make it so children have time to play and have education, uh, that's because of the economy we've got as opposed to the economy of the ancient world. We need educated adults working uh, rather than a whole lot of children working. And as the church, we have in many cases forgotten to depend on our children. And if you think about the exile in particular, uh, the exile where was a moment when ancient Israelite and Judean culture could very easily have died out. I mean, there were plenty of people who were exiled by Babylonians and we don't hear about them anymore and we certainly don't read their ancient texts in our congregations. We have the Bible because of the urgency that these ancient exiles had of passing down their tradition and their texts and their stories and their rituals to their children. So we see a lot of this scattered throughout Exodus 12 and 13, again and again, this command to teach your children. You know, when you do this, right, when your children ask you why you're doing this, you answer them. It's a command that you respond to your questions about your weird rituals. Why are you painting the doorway with blood? Children are gonna ask you if they see you painting a doorway with blood. So it assumes that kids are there for ritual, and it assumes that they're gonna ask questions about it, and it commands the adults to answer. It's kind of like the opposite of a catechism. Instead of commanding the children to answer in a particular way, it's commanding the, the adults to answer the children's questions about their rituals. And that is how we got the Bible. I mean, you know, seriously abbreviated, but by way of passing it down from one tradition 
from one generation to another by way of ritual and by way of understanding that we really do depend on our children. And, you know, the church today, and specifically, you know, the church that calls itself mainline or progressive or whatever we want to call ourselves, is experiencing, you know, not a literal exile, but an experience of suddenly no longer being the dominant majority, of suddenly being something more of a cultural minority and having this uh, unprecedented urgency to pass down tradition. We really do need our children to culturally survive. Without children, it's not going to happen. Well, I was thinking about this because the Presbyterian General Assembly just ended up a couple of weeks ago. And as as every two years when this happens, Presbyterians, uh, one of the conversations that we have is about the um, the ways in which the assembly does and does not validate and and uh, allow for the opinions of its young adult advisory delegates, mm. uh, which are the mystical kind of eighty to thirty some eighteen to thirty somethings that show up uh, that are commissioned from presbyteries to go that have voting power, but their votes don't actually count for anything. They are what they're called advisory. And so the rest of the assembly is supposed to take those that advice into consideration when it does its actual voting. And every time we do this, we get in this argument about why those votes don't count for more and why those voices aren't more respected. And that question seems to cut to the very heart of this deeper anxiety about where is the next generation of leaders and why are we not allowing them to have their voice now such that they might emerge as those leaders and it strikes me that part of what you're helping me to see is that that conversation doesn't start when these when these kids turn 18 that it actually begins much earlier in the churches in the way the church thinks about the the direction in which information is passed and the direction in which wisdom goes, whether it's old to young or young to old, or we're maybe in something together. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's also something that we embody all the time in the way we use the, uh, the resources of the church, the way we use our space, right? The best space is the sanctuary, usually. And the worst space is the basement. And guess who's usually in the sanctuary? And guess who's usually in the basement? Right? The way we use our time, the way we use our money, all of that is communicating welcome to children or not. Yeah, there's, there's a, a horrible joke um, about a congregation that had bats in their sanctuary. Do you guys know this one? They couldn't get the uh-huh. bats out? No. They tried everything, you know, the, they got exterminators and all sorts of experts, and then finally they went to their pastor and they said, we don't know what to do. We can't get the bats out. She said, well, that's easy. You just confirm them. <laughs> uh, that hurts. It does. That's why, I mean, that's why it's such right. a horrible joke that I tell way too frequently. It hurts. Yeah, totally. It hurts that that's how it works. And it's because we suddenly want to welcome them at confirmation after enculturating them into, for, into, in many of our congregations, a completely different church culture in the basement. Sure. 
right? They've never learned how to be church. They've learned how to be Sunday school, and Sunday school is school, and you graduate from school. On that note, I, I do think it's probably time for us to <laughs> talk specifically about some of the lectionary passages that are coming up. We've circled through some of the rich biblical tradition that you've already laid, but I, I don't want us to miss the particular texts for this coming Sunday, which is July 17th. This, so this segment is called Preaching to the Choir, and the texts we're looking at include this oracle of judgment that is passed through Amos. We've got the Genesis story of God promising Abraham that Sarah will be pregnant. And then critically in Luke, we've got this account of Mary and Martha, and Martha distracted, of course, by many things. So Laurel, start us off. How does Annie help you think about these texts? All right, so it goes back to some of the the interruption that we were talking about earlier on. So we start out start out with Amos. So Amos 8 starts out with, this is what the Lord God showed me, a basket of summer fruit. Totally appropriate. Seasonally yeah, totally appropriate. appropriate. Thank you, Revised Common <laughs> Lectionary. Well, and when is a basket of summer fruit not a basket of summer fruit? When it actually means that the end has come upon my people. It's <laughs> <No>. <laughs> a cheery image that Amos chooses and then turns it around. Right, I mean, which is exactly what's going on with Annie, right? It's, we have this cheery image, but it's a, decept- it's a deceptively cheery image. And it's deceptively cheery in that what it's covering up is the same thing that's going on in Amos. Uh, this concern about people who just can't wait to stop their rest time, to stop their Sabbath, so that they can cheat people again. Well, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath so that we may offer wheat for sale? We will make the, the ephah small and the shekel great and practice deceit with false balances, right? They're, they're wondering when they can go back to making a profit, when they can go right. back to work. It's, just, it's Daddy Warbucks all over again. Sure. Um, and it's the system that's certainly working for whoever is trying to, you know, practice deceit with false balances, but it's not working for the vulnerable among them. It's not working for the orphans. And the orphans are always, you know, one of those prime examples of the vulnerable in the Bible, just as we see with Annie. And then if we look at either of the Psalms, whether it's 52 or 15, they go with that same theme of cheating people and that concern with cheating people. Uh, But then when we get to Luke, uh, that's where it gets really interesting for me. So we have the Mary and Martha story. And of course, Martha is, you know, busy with her many, she's worried and distracted by many things. And Mary chooses to sit and listen and let herself be changed. And it's kind of like, uh, this completely surprised me once I started putting it next to Annie, of all things. It's kind of like Mary and Martha are you know, the before and after Daddy Warbucks. The one who's constantly busy and the one who chooses to stop being busy and be, be changed. Which oddly makes me ask a question I never thought I would, is Annie a Christ figure? Well, she reminds me, I mean, I, I, I'm, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of Dickens in this too, right? And, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and Dickens as a kind of different moment in the emergence of childhood, but I also think about Scrooge 
and Scrooge as the man who in some ways is on the Daddy Warbucks uh, conversion track mm-hmm. and a man who goes from this obsessive sense of busyness and capitalist value to someone who opens up and has space for Sabbath and grace and the joy of the city and all the stuff that Dickens gives him in the, in the epilogue to that. And, I, and so I, I think a little bit about, I, I don't know whether that makes Annie a Christ figure, but it certainly makes her the occasion for this kind of classic conversion story in some ways. It is a conversion story. And then it also, you know, it places Annie as the person who can make that change in you without including the sacrificial aspect of what we usually think sure. of in a Christ figure. Usually we think of the Christ figure as being the one who has that that sacrificial role, but this is a more of a life of Christ figure than sure. a than a death and resurrection of Christ figure. Adam, were there other were there other ways that you thought about in terms of these lectionary texts in this film? Well, yeah, I was thinking about Mary and Martha as well, and um, and how our expectations and assumptions of gender tend to swear our sway our interpretations. Uh, so as Laurel noted earlier, Annie is built on a very specific vision of childhood and what constitutes a child uh, and how Victorian understandings of childhood and adulthood have predisposed us to like certain types of stories and to uh, rely upon certain story convention in order to understand. This is, uh, this is why so many stories about children are about orphans, right? Uh, similarly, the Mary and Martha story is subject to so much gender bias in our interpretive world currently. I've heard numerous sermons that start something like, there was Martha up to her knees in pots and pans. And there's this inherent bias in our interpretation that see the work of Martha as primarily household work. Um, and there's there's pretty good textual evidence to assume that it might have been household work. Um, but not long ago, Elizabeth Schuster-Fiorenzo, you know, forwarded a different account and picked up on Luke's version of the or Luke's use of the word diconia, um, which he uses a lot in Acts to talk about church service and to talk about ministry. And it's the same word that he then uses to describe Martha and the work that she's doing in um, in her own house where it doesn't seem like she has a, a husband or a father or even a son. And it seems like there's pretty good evidence to suggest that Martha is doing the work of ministry. Now, this complicates things. And I think for me, as I would prepare to, to preach something like this, um, I like having a more complicated text, and I think there's Luke has provided us ways to complicate our, our gender bias here. Um, there's another problem here, too, which is if we see Martha as busy with the domestic and household duties, we're then prone to see Mary as this sort of passive, docile servant which also has some gender problems. Uh, and so Annie and, and our questions of childhood, I think then find um, a, a, another voice in how we question how women are portrayed in this Lucan text. Let me ask the two of you 
uh, about the text that we haven't talked about at all, which is this Genesis story about the promise of Sarah's um, Sarah's pregnancy that God gives to Abraham. It, it strikes me that one of the things in this film that we haven't really talked about is the value of kind of um, natural, so-called natural parenting, your birth parenting versus adoptive parenting. Uh, we have in this Genesis story the relief and joy that is associated with Sarah uh, now being um, being biologically pregnant. Whereas throughout the New Testament, we have a lot of imagery about adoption. Uh, we have a lot of imagery about families that get rearranged, and uh, especially in Luke's gospel, this kind of insistence from Jesus on the work of rearranging normal family structures and being rearranged into new kinds of family structures as disciples. And because we get Paul's language about this, the spirit of adoption. So I was wondering if y'all might have some thoughts on that as we look at the different models of um, and different value statements about parenting and natural parenting in scripture. I'm going to defer to the Old Testament professor on this one. <laughs> oh, I mean, what I'm thinking about is we think about the difference between biological parenting and adoptive parenting. I mean, I start thinking about you know, how different those ideas are between the ancient Near East and in Greco-Roman culture. Because once you get into Greco-Roman culture, adoption sometimes has a different motivation. Uh, where the adoptive child is sometimes even considered to be preferable to the biological child, just culturally. Um, and you certainly see adoption in ancient Near Eastern culture as well. Um, but where do I go with that with Annie? I, the moment that I think about is, you know, when Molly's crying at the very, very beginning, and Annie's trying to calm her down with some unfortunately horrible acting. <laughs> and it says, says, there, there, it's all right. Think about your folks. Right? Think about the folks who want to adopt you. But there's, there's some hope there, right? That adoption and hope are so closely connected. That right. Whether it's Annie thinking about her, her biological parents, it's, it's the fantasy of hope that I think that she has a hard time letting go of, even though she's, she's found someone who could be family to her. And one of the things that's interesting to me about this Genesis text is where it ends. Right? It, it ends halfway through a verse, for one thing. But it, you know, it leaves out Sarah's response and what, what everyone's responses are to the prospect of, rather than the reality of, whether it's adoptive parenting or biological parenting. Well, and I think that there's a there's a third thing in Annie, which we haven't really touched on, which is the the orphanage as as a place of sort of liminal place, and Miss mm. Hannigan, as someone who is um, failed at her own maternal side. Um, and yet I couldn't help but watch this movie and, and begin to really feel for her. Yeah. Uh, especially by the end where she takes a small turn and tries to prevent Rooster from killing a small child. But she does get to show up at the 4th of July party on an elephant at the very end of the movie. <laughs> so 
they make some attempt to redeem her, but mostly I find her uh, sad, um, not because she's not a mother or doesn't have maternal instincts, but because she seems to be longing for some sort of adult relationship and is only yeah. surrounded by children. Well, that, yeah, I mean, that's pretty clear in the, in the little girls that she sings, that that's exactly what she's missing. And, and so there is something to be said, too, about the ways in which we worship children mm. and we worship youth in particular and how um, they become small idols in our own life. Um, and it causes us to overlook people and the, the needs of, of, of people who either are childless, um, who have chosen not to have children, or are in some ways just sort of longing for some sort of adult relationship. Um, you know, as a, as a son of a single parent, I recognize that there were times in my mother's life where she couldn't hang out with two boys any longer. Like it was just intolerable. Um, and it wasn't, and it was because we weren't pure. First of all, we were a lot of work. Um, but there are times where adults do long for adult relationships. Yeah, Abraham and Sarah are, are presented really as an ongoing narrative of, of a longing for a child, which we see with a lot of the matriarchs and patriarchs going throughout Genesis. Um, but that is a really interesting contrast with the longing for adult relationship. And that longing for a child is so different from the longing for a child we talk about today, the longing for that idealized child as opposed to the longing for that, uh, that valuable child, that child who will help you survive. Yeah, the security that comes with children. Right. And, and that's more like what Miss Hannigan's looking for. Right. Security comes from adult relationships right. in, the, you know, in the world that Miss Hannigan's living in. Well, I think we may have squeezed all the juice out of this that we're going to squeeze out of it. I think that probably wraps it up for Annie and this Sunday's worth of texts. Uh, if you want to check out Annie, it's on iTunes. It's on Amazon Prime. This is also the point in the show where we thank you, Laurel, for joining us and guiding our conversation. If you like what you heard from Laurel, go buy her book, Give Me Children or I Shall Die, wherever books of high quality are sold. Laurel, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Thanks, Laurel. All right, but now it is time for our last segment, Adam. This one is called Postludes. It's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Adam, tell me, what's your postlude for the week? So as I was watching Annie, I was reminded of Maurice Sendak's work. Uh, Maurice Sendak is, the, uh, is most notably the author of Where the Wild Things Are, which does begin to pierce our typical... Uh, story constructions that involve children. That book in particular begins with a child who is angry and mad and gets sent to his room without any food uh, and then goes to a place where he can be strong and powerful and then realizes that he misses home and comes home. Sendak's work has just a different conception of childhood than we're, we, we generally see, or at least he doesn't really condescend to children. Uh, there's this famous interview that he did with Stephen Colbert late in his life where he said, I don't write for children. I write. And somebody says that's for children. And today I just want to commend one book in particular, which is called we are all in the dumps with Jack and guy 
which is a book by Sendak that's weird and beautiful. It tells the story of Jack and Guy who are who rescue this orphaned black child from a gang of rats. Uh, it's a book about homelessness and racism and being gay during the AIDS crisis in New York. And it is so remarkably tender and strange. If you're looking for something that unflinchingly records what it's like to be a child and what it's like to try and make real the most pressing issues of our day, then I would commend you to check out all of Sendak's work. Yeah, so I feel like I probably only know where the wild things are, which is, you know, a movie that we could also look at at some point. Uh, It's really interesting in its own right. And maybe a couple of other of his lesser known stuff. But this is definitely one I don't know. And I'm interested to go check it out. Yeah, check it out. It's uh, it's strange and and fairly controversial and provocative, but um, I think uh, unique and beautiful in its own way. So you've done a really nice job of picking up a post through that has anything to do with our main topic for today. I have not. I just want to talk about Star Trek. Right. The new Star Trek. Right, right. Which is your privilege, Matt. Uh, the new Star Trek movie comes out uh, in about a week and a half from when this podcast drops on the 22nd. This is Star Trek Beyond, directed, of all things, by the Fast and the Furious franchise guy, Justin Lin. Uh, I grew up, so here's my child. I grew up watching like Star Trek uh, Next Generation episodes. And I have a deep love of them. And part of what I love about them, and if I get nostalgic about like how the show is, how the movies have gone down the hills, because I, I think that the best face of Star Trek is this, uh, is this narrative that has not just an emotional payoff to it, but an intellectual payoff to it. It's a little bit of a framework that Alistair Stevens has used when he talked about um, um, science fiction versus fantasy and some of his work on Star Wars and narrative where in his framework, uh, fantasy, which Star Wars is here, works more towards emotional payoff, and science fiction works more towards intellectual payoff. And I've been reflecting on that and reflecting that I think when Star Trek Trek is at its very best, it does a little bit of both. On the very best Star Trek, whether it's Wrath of Khan or whether it's some of the better of the episodes, seem to be able to play in both of those pools at the same time in ways that I think Star Wars never really can because it can't really do the intellectual work, which is why I'm, which is why I'm biased. But I've I've been thinking about this in terms of preaching too. I mean, there's this old kind of terrible dichotomy that talks about that you know preachers who tell stories versus preachers who work with ideas. Uh, like that some sermons will tell stories and they'll have an emotional payoff, and some sermons will be about ideas and they'll have an intellectual payoff, as if stories don't always have ideas in them somewhere or at least hopefully they do and as if ideas don't need stories in which to operate and become active and so i guess my hope as someone who probably gets accused of preaching ideas but i i hope that i do both and my hope is that we tell stories from the pulpit that are both that we have stories that have emotional payoff and stories with intellectual and philosophical payoff i hope that we can do a little bit of um not necessarily hard sci-fi, but something in the middle. So that's where I am, Adam. That's beautiful. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree that if you can, you can preach on both of those registers, I mean, just the ability to yield uh, the attention of more people is, is so valuable. And I, and I reject the assumption that you can't do both at once. Yeah, I think I, that's, what I, that's where I really am. I agree. I agree. I think the best preachers always do uh, do them both at the same time. So, Matt, that wraps it up for this episode of Technicolor Jesus. 
just so everyone knows, we are going to take a short break through the month of August before we will return in the fall. We are working on some new guests, some new ideas, some new upgrades for the show. But before we leave for the next few weeks, Matt, I want to know what movies are banging around in your head as possibilities for our next season. All right, so here's the short list of things that I thought would be fun for us to talk about at some point in the future. Uh, first one is uh, Take Shelter. This is Jeff Nichols' 2011 thriller about a, a man who uh, has visions of big storms coming. He has dreams of big storms and has to build the storm shelter in his backyard. It's an amazing film. We could talk about apocalyptic in some really serious ways. Uh, one is a director that we bonded over, which is David Fincher. We have not talked about David Fincher. At some point, we've got to talk about Social Network, which is, I think, his masterpiece, uh, and talk about community and the commodification of community and friendship. You want to talk about friendship? Let's do it. Uh, uh, a few weeks ago, I saw um, Brooklyn, which is John Crowley's 2015 film about the immigrant experience uh, with Shusha Ronan coming to, to Brooklyn as an Irish immigrant in the 1940s and 50s. A really incredible movie that kind of has become my favorite from last year that I think as we talk about the biblical images of immigration and migration and uh and sojourn we should have that in our vocabulary uh one from a few years earlier is a uh, gina prince blythewood's 2000 film love and basketball which is a, a love story about a, a boy and girl who grew up playing basketball next door and each become successful in their own right and how they have to um both fall in love and be in love and manage their respective passions and careers and actually to be honest as a member of a clergy couple i thought that might be a really interesting way for us to talk about some of the professional constraints of clergy and then my unorthodox wild card advent movie is to watch wong kar wai's 1994 masterpiece chunking express which is all about waiting and expectation and expiration wow. as hong kong thinks about becoming in that moment, it's it's it, the clock is turning on its reversion back to China. Wow, what a, that's what I've got, Adam. What do you have? I want to hear what what other things are you going to make? Well, me watch? I want to watch your movies. I mean, I haven't seen Take Shelter, and I really want to see that. And um, I'll watch Chunking Express anytime. I love that movie. I think Wong Kar Wai is a, an a, an immense immense talent. Um, so uh, given that next fall will be in plum in the middle of election season, and then moving into Advent. Uh, I'm going to focus my suggestions on politics and Christmas. Um, so I, I want to encourage us to watch Alexander Payne's Election, which is this incredibly funny movie uh, about yeah, ambition, drive, power. It's brilliantly told. Uh, there's not a frame misplaced in the whole movie. And Reese Witherspoon is a force of nature as Tracy Flick. She's just incredible. Uh, Matthew Broderick, yeah. also great in the movie. Um Considering our, our particular political climate, I think it might be worthwhile to watch uh, Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator. It's, Good, yeah. It's not the first... I've actually never seen it. Yeah, oh, really? But... Yeah, it's not the first film satire, but it may be the best. Um, the physicality of Chaplin and the mistaken identity that's at the center of the movie produce one of the more rousing final speeches ever written for a film where he says, look up, Hannah, the soul of man has been given wings and at last he's beginning to fly. It's really, truly beautiful. Um it's it's a lovely lovely movie and if you haven't seen it it's it's one that i would commend uh chaplin really paves the way for one of my favorite movies ever which is stanley kubrick's dr strange love or how i learned to stop worrying and love the bomb uh this is 1960s cold war satire at its best and there's just an amazing performance by peter sellers it's among 
the best American performances um, cinema has ever seen. It's funny and crazy. And Criterion just put out a brand new version that I think just came out on Tuesday, if I'm not uh, mistaken. And so I put that on my Christmas list. And then finally, one Christmas movie that's not really a Christmas movie, um, which is uh, Billy Wilder's 1960 movie called The Apartment, which has Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine at the center. Uh, It takes place during the Christmas season, but it is funny and tragic and uh, and lovely. It's perhaps the best romantic comedy that uh, American cinema has ever seen. And I just love that movie so damn much. So we, we, we haven't done Billy Wilder at all. No, have we, we haven't. That, uh, yeah, Billy Wilder is amazing. Let's do it. Those are some of the suggestions that I that I think we should that we should focus on. But if you out there have suggestions of movies that you think might be interesting for our show and for the life of ministry, please send them in. Let us know uh, as we begin to plan next season. Uh, they'll be invaluable for us. All right, folks, thanks for listening. Don't forget to find us on SoundCloud and iTunes. If you have questions, if you want to tell us how we got it wrong, if you want to tell Adam how he got it wrong, if you want to praise our great insight. (laughs) (laughs) You want to suggest a guest or pick one of those movies, come to our Facebook page, leave a message, leave a review on iTunes. They are invaluable in helping other folks find the show. If you like the show, tell a friend, and we will see you next time. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt. Super rich kids with nothing but loose ends. Super rich kids with nothing but fake friends. Start my day up on the roof. There's nothing like this type of view. Point the clicker at the tube. I prefer expensive news. New car, new girl. New ice, new glass. New watch, good times, baby.